a prison officer saw him try to escape, opened up with his 38 pistol, couldn't hit him, missed him, and Russell Cox went over the outside fence. The coppers look in this old falcon wagon or whatever it is, and they find a prison library card in the name of Raymond Denning, and they go, uh-oh, <laughs> and there's bullets everywhere, and they, they've just, it's like something out of Dirty Harry, it really was. There was, you know, I don't know, 60 bullets fired or something, a lot. I'm Andrew Rule. this is Life and Crimes. Last week, we looked at the life and escaping times of the man we call McVillan, that is, David McMillan. This week, we're going to look at our old friend, Russell Mad Dog Cox. Not his real name. We've mentioned Russell Cox on this podcast once or twice. Real name, not Cox, alias Mad Dog Cox. He wasn't mad and he wasn't a dog. And his real name wasn't Cox. It was actually Schnitzeling. I think he might have been christened Melville Peter Schnitzeling. But as a youngster, he was known as Tim, Tiny Tim or Tim for some reason. But when he got out in the world and started going to boys' homes and then going to jails, one of the aliases stuck and it was Russell Cox and that's the name that he, he used or was used a lot with him. We didn't even go through his early days. He was a kid from Queensland. The Schnitzelings were a quite a well-known family of German origin in rural Queensland. I think out in the Darling Downs, out that way, out past Toowoomba or somewhere. And in fact, there's a Schnitzeling Road out there, named after his ancestors. And I think one of his family members, grandfather or whatever, might have had a brickworks in one of those towns, maybe Toowoomba or one of those towns. And they were quite a well-known family. But, you know, one thing leads to another. They fell on hard times. And by the time young Russell, as we'll, we'll call him Russell, by the time he was a youngster, things were a bit tough in the family and he and his, I think maybe one of his brothers might have ended up being naughty boys and a young Russell or Timmy as they called him then ended up in boys homes and the boys homes in that era in Queensland were very very tough places and bad things happened to boys in them and it turned kids that might have been turned around and put on the straight and narrow, it turned them some of them into very bitter, hardened, calloused crooks. And Russell Cox was exactly that. He became a sort of crime commando. He was a fitness fanatic. He became extremely good at disguises as well as fitness. He would disguise himself with artist makeup and false moustaches and all this sort of stuff. And he was someone who studied whatever task came to hand and mastered it, which is why he's such a good crook. A lot of crooks were rough and ready and said, oh, we'll take a chance on it, you know, that'll do. They'd get half drunk before they did a job. They were reckless, they were stupid. They'd get money from a robbery and go and blow the lot at the races. Russell Cox was always more considered than that, which is maybe why he had a different sort of career path and why he's still alive. And Cox... Uh, he had his ups and downs, but he ended up in Katingle. Now, Katingle was part of Long Bay Jail in Sydney. And Katingle was one of these brand new, wonderful, space-age electronic zoos, rather like the Jika Jika division 
of Pentridge, same sort of thing. And they were steel, thick glass and concrete. They were built, you know, like an electronic zoo so that there were electric doors and that the prison officers never had to actually be in with the desperate prisoners and very, very inhumane places in many ways. They were allegedly escape-proof. Now, what Cox did, there are variations on this story, but he certainly got hold of a hacksaw blade inside Katingle. He worked out that there was an exercise yard, and in the exercise yard there were actually bars or mesh that weren't made of really high-grade steel. They weren't made of hardened steel. And he knew that on a given time, if the prison officer wasn't actually looking through the window at the exercise yard, that he had a minute or so to jump up or be lifted up by other prisoners. There's a bit of argy-bargy about this. Was he lifted up by other prisoners and, and stood on their shoulders or did he jump up and pull himself up one-handed because he was very strong and very light and saw away at, these, at this mesh or this bar with the hacksaw blade. Now, what they used to do was a very arduous, long-term process. Every time a prisoner wanted to go to the toilet, the prison officer that was supposed to be watching them had to go and open something up for the guy, and that meant he wasn't looking at what Cox and others were doing. And for that minute or so, Cox would be able to jump up and soar away at this bar. And he did this every other day for weeks and weeks and weeks until finally he'd sawn almost through it. And what he used to do was he had a little tiny bit of wet green paint that he used to make um, model planes, stuff like that, hobby stuff. And every time he'd sawn a little bit through this bar, he'd rub this little bit of green paint on it and perhaps a bit of soap or something like that, and it would fill the cut so that no one could see it. And the day came when, in fact, they were supposed to have a mass escape. Quite a lot of prisoners were in on this on this escape attempt. A mob of them uh, decided they were going to court in a van, and they were going to court elsewhere in a van, and they said, we'll try and escape from the van, but if we don't, can't get away, we'll have this as a reserve. When we get back to Long Bay, Katingle, we'll go through the, the Russell Cox hatchway. Cox thought, oh, yeah. It turns out that they did try and escape from the van. They were caught trying to escape from the van and maybe they all got locked up in new quarters. I don't know what happened there, but apparently they didn't get back to where Cox was and Cox said, bugger it, I'm going anyway. So he he got out one up. He just left and he got over through this window. He had to drop seven metres. Now, he trained himself for three years He'd done martial arts and he'd taken on vegetarian food because he had to make himself really thin and light and strong. So he had to turn himself sort of into um, Spider-Man on diet and exercise. And he'd studied this and he'd, he'd found a guy in there that was a martial arts expert who explained to him how you could do certain exercises to make yourself very strong, but also very light, not have muscle bulk. And... He not only got through this narrow opening, when he dropped the seven metres onto a hard surface, he didn't smash himself to smithereens. He was able to sort of, I think he dropped onto a ledge and then jumped again. Then he was able to get over all these uh, other fences and things. 
a prison officer saw him try to escape, opened up with his 38 pistol, couldn't hit him, missed him, and Russell Cox went over the outside fence and presumably someone was there waiting in a car for him. It might have even been a woman. I'm not sure. And he vanished. That was in 1977. Russell Cox stayed on the run, Australia's most wanted man, for 11 years. And we'll be back after this. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. In that time... In 1983, I don't know where else he was, but in in that time, we know that at one point he'd bought a property in Queensland under a false name, bought a property near the old Schnitzeling Road where his ancestors came from, and he lived there under a false name with his de facto wife, girlfriend, Helen Dean, who was very, uh, she was a vegetarian, she was a nurse, she was not sort of a crook by nature. And they lived a very quiet life where they ate healthy food and looked after their dogs and, and all that. Always one step ahead of the law. They must have had lawyers and people like that sort of on site. They say that he or they both travelled overseas. It just shows you at that time false passports were a thing. Crooks could get them. That after his escape um, early doors, in fact, he went to England and Germany and worked overseas for a while, and, and he worked as a seaman, and then he came back to Australia in 82, so he he did a lot of different stuff. He was great and good friends with Ray Chuck, the guy we call Ray Chuck, also known as Raymond Patrick Bennett, who was the mastermind of the great bookie robbery back in the 70s, and there's no doubt that Cox was tied up with the bookie robbers. There's no doubt that he had a rented house at... Mount Eliza, I think it was down near Frankston, and that one of the other bookie robbers, a guy called Ian Ravel Carroll, visited him and Helen Dean at this rented house, and there was an argument and a shootout, and both Carroll and Cox drew guns and shot at each other. Cox was the better shot because Carroll was found dead, but clearly a bullet had also struck Cox because when the police, the neighbours called the police and when the police got there, they found the dead guy and they found this blood trail leading into the house and then they found a chair in the kitchen or somewhere and there's blood on it and then they look up and there's a manhole in the roof and clearly he's reached up in the roof to get hold of 
stuff that he wanted. And what the police found was robbery kits. The police found these suitcase with all sorts of stuff, guns, you know, machine guns as well, I think, artist makeup, fake moustaches and all this sort of stuff, and fake lettering so that uh, lettering could be stuck on the side of a car to make a car look like a commercial vehicle. So I could have, you know, Joe's plumbing or something. So he had all this stuff, these robbery kits, all made up. Clearly they were running, organising, franchising robberies, these guys. But once he got shot and the alarm went up, all he wanted was, you know, a gun and some money and basic stuff. He and Helen Dean hot-footed it uh, up the highway. He's bleeding from this serious wound. They get up into rural New South Wales. Now, Helen Dean was a nurse and she's probably able to bandage him a bit and whatever, but she said, this is no good, you know, it's, you're going to need a doctor. And what they did, they were so cool and had so much front, so calm, they were able to go to a country doctor in New South Wales and tell him this story that they'd just flown in by light plane from New Guinea and that they'd been, you know, shot by rascals, the New Guinea criminals, in a shootout up there and it was very ugly and they were frightened to go to the hospital in New Guinea because, you know, anything could happen there and the treatment wouldn't be so good, etc. So they told this rural doctor in New South Wales that they'd flown back to New South Wales to get a doctor just like him. And he said, oh, okay. So he believes this story. So he operates on Cox, removes the bullet, gives him antibiotics and all the rest of it, stitches up the wound, and away he went. That was in 83. He pulled other robberies, and we won't go through them all here. He did all sorts of stuff. Some of those things we've mentioned in other podcasts. He pulled big robberies uh, here, there and everywhere. He had a network of contacts and people that would help him, spotters and all the rest of it. He was a genius at avoiding police he could smell when police had something under surveillance and he knew about it. But in the end, as happens, he and a fellow escapee called Raymond Denning, Raymond John Denning. Now, Denning was a more reckless character. He had been the sort of face of prison reform. He was sort of a Che Guevara sort of geezer and full of piss and wind, really, compared with Cox. And he escaped from jail in New South Wales in 1988. Entire six police forces and the federal police in Australia couldn't catch Russell Cox in 10 years or 11 years, but Raymond Denning found him in eight days. That's how good the prison network was at finding each other in safe houses. Within eight days, they're both in Melbourne together. We know this story, long story short, they are casing a robbery out at Doncaster Shopping Town in July. 88, and somebody twigs that something's not quite right. The armed robbery squad's called in. They have a look in this car that's been parked, might have been following an armoured car or parked near the armoured car, and the coppers look in this old Falcon wagon or whatever it is, and they find a prison library card in the name of Raymond Denning, and they go, uh-oh, <laughs> he was you know, more or less the second most wanted man in Australia. We've got a live one here. So they know that Denning's part of this, sitting off this armoured car. So the coppers have this massive shootout 
at Doncaster Shopping Town in the, in the car park. And there's bullets everywhere and they, they just, it's like something out of Dirty Harry. It really was. There was, you know, I don't know, 60 bullets fired or something, a lot. And none of them actually wound Cox. I think he might have got a bit of a biffing otherwise, but no bullet wounds. None of the police were shot either. When they get him back to police headquarters, they've gone and grabbed Denning and they're happy about that. I said, who are you? And he said, not going to tell you. Well, who are you? Not going to tell you. He said, but you're going to be pretty happy <laughs> when you find out. So they fingerprinted him <laughs> and they got the results and they then that's when they realised they had Australia's most wanted man on the run for 11 years and they'd picked him up at this robbery without even knowing who he was. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. To finish, the short version of the Russell Cox story is he didn't escape again. He served his time, plenty of it. He befriended through the fact that he was sort of a good bloke that people liked. Prison officers liked him. He treated prison officers respectfully and treated everybody pretty well, although he was a cold-blooded killer. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't a sweetheart and he had killed people and he was prepared to rob people at the point of a gun and if they caused trouble, he'd shoot them. He was, you know, bad. But the prison officers t- ended up liking him. He said, I'm not doing any of this anymore. He just served out his time quietly. He you know, kept fit. He did all the right things. He was visited by the ever-loving Helen Dean. It's one of the great underworld love stories of all time, their story. And finally, when he was in late middle age, he was released quietly, not in Victoria, elsewhere. They ended up, I think they got married and they lived and still live happily ever after, not far from Brisbane, I do believe. And so that's one of those rare stories with a sort of happy ending. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is John Burton. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about these stories, links are in the description of this episode.